You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. This is uh, uh, the uh, Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal, uh, coming to you remotely today, which <clears throat> so many people are doing with uh, the COVID virus um, uh, outbreak. Let me just get into the COVID facts in just a second. This is the Doctor's Lounge. Um, each week we come to you with the information that you need so that you can um, uh, support your family and yourself with the information that's necessary for you to advocate for your health care. Uh, the show is brought to you by the Doctor's Lounge, uh, by the, uh, sorry, by the uh, Doctor Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led health care think tank in the country. Our website is www.d4pcfoundation.org. That's D, the number four, pcfoundation.org. Now more than ever, we need your financial help so that we can be there to do shows like this and give you the information that you need about issues such as the COVID crisis. Um, I know that times are hard for everybody, and uh, anything that you can do to help support us is uh, um, very much appreciated. So let's talk about um, COVID on March 26th. This is uh, a uh, ongoing saga that is uh, taking up uh, every single bit of energy that we have. Um, before I go on, I just wanted to uh, tell you that this is such a, uh, a difficult problem that our guest today, Betsy McCoy, um, contacted me late last night that there's a family issue that has come up and she is not going to be with us today on the show and we'll get her back on uh, hopefully in the very near future. But that underscores the unpredictability of this situation. She lives in New York City, the epicenter right now of the COVID crisis in the U.S., and she uh, uh, is uh, right in the midst of this, um, and who knows what kind of problems she and her family are facing, but we um, are praying for them and wish them well, and hopefully this is nothing uh, too terribly serious. Let me start out, as I have in the last couple of shows, with some COVID uh, facts. Uh, The Johns Hopkins um, website gives real-time data about COVID uh, uh, numbers currently. There's just under um, a half a million uh, COVID cases confirmed around the world with uh, the most being in China at a little over 80,000, but the number of new cases in China has slowed to a trickle. Italy is not far behind China, with the U.S. um, jumping to number three in the world with uh, just under 70,000 cases. In the uh, world, there are uh, 22,000 deaths, and... um, Uh, The majority of the deaths have been in Italy with 7,500 people dying from the disease. Spain comes in number two at 4,000, surpassing China. Um, Iran 
uh, France, United Kingdom, and the Netherlands round out uh, the top eight, um, with uh, the U.S. coming in at number nine with 280 deaths, um, the, uh, a good number of which uh, are in the epicenter, New York. And we'll get back to that in a moment. Um, so uh, one other thing about uh, COVID, the facts about the disease, is that uh, we're now starting to see cases pop up in the southern hemisphere as they get to their winter or their, their fall season. And um, this is typical of the seasonality of uh, the um, uh, uh, flu or, or, or viral illnesses. And so we, even though we've seen a, uh, a very small number of cases coming in um, in, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere up until now, we can expect that that number will likely go up once uh, they get into the, the middle and end of their fall and uh, the beginning of their winter. So it shows the seasonality of this virus, just like um, the behavior of viruses um, uh, in, uh, around the world and uh, throughout history. Um, the, uh, um, there's been a lot of talk right now in the media about uh, the, the treatments for coronavirus, which I'm going to get to in uh, just a, a little while. But I wanted to uh, pretend that I had my guest, Betsy McCoy, on uh, today because she's written several um, very good articles um, that uh, uh, focus entirely on the coronavirus. And let me just give you the background on Betsy. Betsy is the former lieutenant governor of New York from 1995 to 1998 under George Pataki. She is the chairman and founder of the Committee to Reduce Infection Deaths, and she's devoted um, the uh, last 20-plus uh, years uh, to this issue. So she is very well aware about uh, uh, infections and um, epidemics and pandemics, and she's been writing about this for a number of years. She's a regular guest on Fox News, CNBC, Sean Hannity, and uh, she is a featured columnist in the New York Post and a leading advocate for patients' rights. So she was the first to write about, uh, in defense of President Trump closing the uh, border to uh, Chinese uh, um, uh, rights coming in. And um, uh, she wrote about this in early February. Um, she's the first to write about the unpreparedness of the uh, federal health care bureaucrats dealing with coronavirus. And she's written several recent articles about uh, uh, two issues, one of which she's taken a lot of flack about, which is the uh, ventilator crisis in New York State. The other one is, when is this lockdown going to end? Um, the ventilator um, uh, issue in New York is that there is a shortage of ventilators, and um, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York has been on TV. He's been featured uh, prominently um, and has um, waxed and waned 
uh, of his support of uh, how the president is handling this crisis. Um, sometimes Governor Cuomo acts very um, uh, statesman-like um, and uh, does not bring politics into into this discussion. Other times he is very partisan and uh, uh, shows uh, his true colors before this all started. The um, reports that came out that Betsy McCoy um, wrote about had to do with the fact that um, Governor Cuomo um, had had information about a shortage in ventilators back in 2015 and had an opportunity to uh, purchase more ventilators um, at a uh, fairly um, uh, low cost to New York State. Um, he put New York's health commissioner on this to assemble a task force um, and uh, they made the decision that they would not purchase um, more ventilators, uh, but instead um, they would determine through a uh, plan, a triage plan, uh, who would be um, uh, getting uh, the ventilators if it came uh, to a uh, point where there was um, a, a need that overwhelmed the system and uh, they needed to use all the ventilators that they had in place. And so the, the money that they had that they could have appropriated to uh, be prepared and buy ventilators that would cover an, uh, an emergency like this pandemic was instead diverted to other um, uh, purposes that uh, really did uh, nothing to uh, help New Yorkers. Um, uh, one of the boondoggles that they used that money for instead of ventilators was a solar panel factory in Buffalo, which uh, did not uh, do uh, very much at all for providing energy to New York State. And so when the governor of New York comes out critical of President Trump and he uh, is claiming that uh, the federal government is not doing enough for um, the state of New York and where are ventilators. Um, this is uh, what she's pointing out, that, uh, that states are responsible for themselves first and foremost, and uh, it's not the job of the federal government to provide these services. And uh, the governor, although um, he is... Uh, uh, blaming the president needs to uh, look in the mirror and see where he dropped the ball. But again, there's going to be plenty of time for finger pointing and blaming. Um, but that's that's uh, something I'll get to a little bit later on in the show. So far in New York City, one out of every four people with a confirmed case of coronavirus has been hospitalized and almost half of them have needed ventilators. So this is something that is just math. It's something that could have been uh, figured out. And um, at a time when the death rate in some areas is astonishingly, astonishingly high, like in Italy, um, where the death rate was uh, 7%, um, which uh, is more than double of what it was in many other countries, and affected almost a quarter of Italy's population, over 65. Um, 
I'm sorry, affected almost a quarter of, uh, yeah, affected a quarter of Italy's population, and a quarter of the population is over 65. This is not, uh, it was not unpredictable, just like in New York, where the epicenter has shifted to a place where people are on top of each other. It was not unpredictable that this ventilator crisis would have surfaced and, and been an issue in the case of a pandemic. So I think that it's really important um, not to uh, pl- play the blame game at this time because I think that uh, um, we all live in glass houses and there's, a, there's plenty of blame to go around. And the, the, the uh, issue is where do we go from here? How do we prevent this? Um, and uh, what measures do we take to uh, try to um, uh, mitigate risk and get back to some semblance of uh, uh, normalcy. Um, Betsy wrote another article not, uh, just that just came out uh, um, yesterday in the New York Post about uh, when to end uh, this uh, lockdown because the lockdown is affecting every uh, everybody. Everybody is, is affected and we see what's happening to the economy and uh, um, this is something that uh, may be a case of the um, the medicine is worse than the disease. So um, I think that it's important to get a few facts out there, as Betsy pointed out in her article, that people who are infected are most contagious before they have symptoms, and some spread the infection widely but never get sick themselves. And that's why it's screening for fever or telling people who don't feel well to stay at home isn't enough to stop the virus. Um, it can be um, dangerous just standing next to somebody who is unknowingly infected. And traces of the virus can survive for hours on a shopping cart handle or on an elevator button, according to the New England Journal of Medicine. Right now, 20 states are on lockdown, and um, and this may increase. Um, but um, the big problem is not so much the um, the extent of the the virus. Viruses are everywhere in our in our community. Um, the problem is our preparedness to handle a person who's sick with the virus. That means medicines, and it means hospitals for those who are most uh, affected, who are who are uh, showing uh, signs of illness. Now, fortunately, over eighty percent of people will get this virus. Some won't even know it. Some will have very uh, mild uh, cold-like symptoms. Others will have a little bit more serious flu-like symptoms, and about. 20% will need to go to the hospital, um, but only um, uh, uh, 2% will um, be uh, critical and, uh, and succumb to this, to this uh, uh, disease. So the, the issue is hospital preparedness. Hospital shortages um, uh, internationally have been responsible for many of the deaths from coronavirus. The uh, death rate in China spiked when the system ran out of hospital beds and ventilators and medical staff. And that the same happened in Spain. 
Um, so hospital readiness is really the benchmark, and we need to get hospitals up and running and prepared so that we can go ahead and uh, take care of those who need to be in the hospital. And um, and then we need to let uh, loosen up the the, uh, the regulations on on lockdowns. Uh, I don't. I think that the experts who are talking about this um, all come at this with certain biases, and I'm going to circle back to that in a few minutes. But the the biases um, influence how they uh, determine what the best course of action should be. The um, the medical community is even split on how to best manage this problem. Now, certainly, if we put everybody in uh, a uh, in their houses and apartments and didn't let anybody out for two weeks, this this, this problem would run its course and, and likely go away, but it wouldn't completely run its course and there would still be more uh, cases that have surfaced um, that are community spread. And so that would lower the, the, um, the uh, incidence. It would flatten the curve, as you've heard people say. But this is not the answer. The answer is to um, let it run its course because of what's called herd immunity. Herd immunity is that when you have a disease in the community, people get infected with it, and then they develop immunity to it. Um, herd immunity is one of the, um, the two ways that you protect people from getting an illness. The other way is to go ahead and um, uh, in, in inoculate people to give them vaccinations and, and uh, introduce them to uh, an inactive uh, uh, virus, an active uh, strain, so that their body can produce a, a uh, antibodies to uh, ward off the virus. That's what happens every season with the flu. They, the experts try to guess what strains are going to predominate. They could, uh, prepare a, uh, a vaccination that has um, elements of those strains of the flu, and, and sometimes the experts guess right, sometimes they don't. Well, that's what's happening right now. There, there are people all over the world who are um, uh, who are uh, working on this day and night trying to develop a vaccination for this disease. But we have to prepare for um, people who are sick, just like the um, uh, people who get the influenza uh, virus and, and get sick and need to be hospitalized, just like. Um, happened with H1N1, who got sick and got hospitalized. The problem with the coronavirus is that it appears to be far more um, uh, communicable. It means that people are catching this uh, disease. It's it's easy to spread this disease. So um, lockdown is not the answer. Um, It is, um, uh, this is what I mean by the medicine being worse than the cure. Um, the lockdown is a danger to our lives. Um, what do you say to people who have um, uh, spent their lives building a business and then it disappears because they they uh, have to uh, 
stay in their house for two weeks, maybe three weeks, maybe four weeks. Um, people have a uh, um, not only a concern about their physical health, but their financial health, which affects their mental health. And this is all incredibly important. Um, the the um, consequences of the um, uh, the uh, reaction to the coronavirus, the lockdowns and shutting down of our economy, may lead to worse problems following this: suicides from from uh, depression, drug overdoses, and and um, and this is brought upon by financial failure and joblessness. Um, we're being told. We will be told today about the latest unemployment numbers. Larry Kudlow uh, did not want to disclose what those actually were, but he um, did say that they would be um, significant. Um, And so um, hospitals need to get up and running. Um, We need to increase capacity, and that's being done by canceling elective surgeries and moving more beds into just routine rooms, trying to secure um, um, a protective gear for um, medical personnel, getting ventilators, masks, other other equipment, and that's all coming. And everybody is, um, they are uh, uh, changing their, uh, their, um, their factories, they're retrofitting them to be able to produce um, these, these materials much like happened during World War II. And President Trump has enacted uh, um, the uh, laws that that were passed in the 1940s to allow com- uh, companies to do that. But um, in, in uh, New York, um, they have one-third of the nation's cases. And um, in, in, across the country, 8% of the tests are coming back positive. But in New York, 28% are coming back positive. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is um, uh, a uh, worse situation in New York as far as uh, the the spread, although, although it, it very likely is because people are on top of each other. But there's been much more testing in New York, and I think that that's what we're seeing. But um, we, we need to face certain facts, and that is that the system needs to be prepared to handle, handle this onslaught, um, and we need to loosen, loosen things up so that we are able to um, try to get back to some semblance of normalcy. We can't do that if the hospitals are unprepared. This is a matter of hospital preparedness, and unfortunately... Um, We've uh, uh, seen that uh, we are um, uh, woefully unprepared, and there's a lot of reasons, and I'm trying very hard not to get into politics of why that's the case, Um, but it's the the fact is that um, I'm just going to get this out and not go through this much more. Um, Our system is... uh, um, geared towards um, hospitals running the show. The hospitals are interested in maximizing profits, and they are underprepared for 
events such as this. And um, taking the, the healthcare system out of the hands of doctors who are the best decision makers, and we're seeing that right now. Doctors are rising to the occasion. You know, people are saying um, what heroes the doctors are on the front lines. It's not just the frontline doctors, it's all doctors, and I'll um, circle back to that in the second half of this show. But I think that what people need to understand is that um, when doctors are the ones making the decisions about health care, then things will be done right. When you start to get politicians and bureaucrats, business people who are making decisions about health care, we find that we're caught with our pants down, just like we are right now. And so this is something that hopefully will be a hard lesson um, that, that we've learned that won't get repeated and that we can pivot and move in a positive direction. One more thing I have to talk about before we get to our hard break and then we go into the um, second half of the show. Um, children, they are told, we are told that children are less likely to get this disease. And that's true. I think that there is something to be said about um, uh, children being um, uh, receptacles for diseases. They just get sick. And we all know that. Anybody who has had children or been around children know that. And so they have, I think, better immunity than older individuals do, certainly elderly individuals or immunocompromised individuals. But children are um, a, a, a repository for this virus. And um, in China, of 700 infected children there, over half of them were completely well and showed no symptoms. So they can, they can actually transmit the disease unknowingly, and uh, this is a big problem. Again, why we can't um, necessarily um, deal with this disease by um, isolating ourselves and shutting down our, our economy. So here's the good news. In um, rhesus monkeys, the infection produces an immunity to reinfection. What that means is that if somebody has had the disease and you're cured, you're likely not going to get this again. Right now, around the world, almost 120,000 people have recovered from the coronavirus. So for this is the herd immunity, which is what we are going to rely on until um, we get a vaccination developed to take care and protect the rest of the people. The um, other way that we're going to deal with this is to find medicines that are helpful at taking care of the virus if you get it, making you well. That's been a big problem. This is a disease that affects the lungs. And so in um, most people, they need ventilatory support. A very small number of people um, have lungs that are so stiff because they are filled with fluid that the ventilator can't um, work because um, oxygen can't be exchanged in the lungs in those individuals. Those are the ones who die. 
those are people who rely on some other ways of surviving, and there are some other machines that can can uh, get them through this. But the drugs that have been described to um, help people in that setting, or even before they get there, which you've all now heard about, which is the chloroquine, which is what you use for malaria, coupled with the antibiotic azithromycin, which people commonly know as a ZPAC. <clears throat> people who have been treated with this regimen have become virus-free in six days. Now, there's been a lot of politicization about this issue. Um, there's some doctors who are using it, and we're hearing about anecdotal responses. That means no controlled trials being conducted. Scientists like to see controlled trials so that they know something works. But right now, we, are, we don't have the luxury of controlled trials. We need to use whatever we have as long as it's not unsafe, and these drugs are safe. And so what the president has tried to do is free the, this drug up, and Governor Cuomo has been very receptive to this, and they're trying to um, uh, get a supply of the chloroquine uh, to New York State and try this on the, the most affected individuals. So there are a hundred different treatment regimens that are being used around the world, and there are very smart people who are um, working on this. So I'm very uh, optimistic that we're going to have a treatment for this um, before long. I'm going to take a hard break right here, and then we will come back in the second half of the doctor's lounge and talk about some personal issues I wish to share with you, so stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back.
back into the doctor's lounge. I'm Dr. Hal, your host, and um, we are doing uh, this show remotely um, because of the coronavirus, something that uh, so many people are now uh, engaged in doing their business from home. Um, in, in medicine, it's not easy to do that, and that's what I'd like to share with people in uh, the last half of the show. But what I want to do right now is I want to uh, just <clears throat> uh, talk about the politicization of this whole process. <clears throat> I try desperately not to get into the politics of things um, during this crisis because it really does not serve a purpose. But I cannot um, uh, really... Uh, Stop myself from from pointing out the um, the audacity of the left um, and what uh, how they are using this crisis <clears throat> to uh, advance their agenda and um, and it's at the expense of the entire country of every single person. The left would prefer to see our country shut down. And uh, they, would, they would think that it would be better for people to lose their jobs and lose their businesses than to see President Trump reelected. And um, this is, this is a, a sickness. This is a disease. These people are, are so deranged that they cannot um, stand when uh, Trump does something that is is positive. Um, they've, uh, the, the stay-at-home order and the um, hype from the media making this into something that is bigger than it may be. I'm not even for a second saying that this isn't serious and a problem, but the media is, is incentivized two ways to make this more sensational than it really is. First, they rely on this because this is what they live for. This is how they um, they survive by having people tune in to them and people are watching the news 24-7 and they are, um, this, is, this is bolstering their business. But secondly, the majority of the media, the mainstream media, hate Trump and this is an opportunity for them to use this crisis, as Rahm Emanuel has said, never let crisis go to waste and uh, destroy Trump. Trump will not be destroyed from this. In fact, we're finding that his popularity is increasing the way he's handling it. There's no president in the country, in the country's history, that has been more transparent with the country than President Trump. Every single day, he gives a news conference and has experts answering every single question that the media throws at him. These are two-hour news conferences. In fact, the left is starting to say that he should, these conferences should not be, um, should not be aired. They should not be transmitted. Why? Because it is showcasing Trump and it is giving him an opportunity to do what they say is a rally every single day. They hate the fact 
that he is putting together a team of people who are responding appropriately. And he's doing so much. He knows that he's not the expert, but he's willing to listen, and he has assembled an, a team of experts who are um, who are absolutely the best people to um, to handle the issues that we're seeing right now. And when he says that he's a wartime president and he is uh, fighting an invisible enemy, that's true. And what we want a president to do is to show leadership, to show confidence, to instill hope. And he has done all of that. And the left has absolutely um, um, gone gone crazy about um, anything that he does and, and uh, he cannot do anything right. And uh, this is the, their disease. They cannot put aside their their venom for him and work with him. And uh, this is this is you know a a uh, giant problem. The other problem has to do with the the with the swamp in Washington. Last night, the Senate came up with a a two point two trillion dollar package to uh, help Americans, and Americans need help. This aid package um, gives money to individuals, puts money in their pocket, $1,200 to Americans earning up to $75,000, for couples earning up to $150,000, $500 per child, with subsidies um, that that continue until you make $99,000, they're decreasing, so you're, the more you make closer to 99000 the less of that 12000 you get. Um, and for joint filers with our kids, it's $198,000. Um, and uh, they're even giving money to people who aren't working. And uh, it's just to try to stimulate the economy and put money in people's pockets. Um, the... Um, the eligibility for this is that you have to have a social security number and you can't be claimed as a dependent by by another individual who's receiving subsidies. Um, the checks um, will be going out um, very, very soon. And in addition to this, broad expansion is, one, is an expansion in unemployment benefits. Current unemployment benefit assistance has been increased by $600 per week for four months, and this is part of the negotiation. I did not see the final um, the final uh, outcome, uh, which happened late last night, but the uh, objection was that people could actually make more money by not working than by working, and that's not the intent. The intent is to help people who have lost their jobs or who have been furloughed or uh, who um, are... Uh, um, underemployed because of this. Small businesses will get money. Large corporations will get money. There will be some um, bailouts for industries that need help, like the airlines. So this is a package that's not a stimulus package. This is an aid package to try to get the economy going and help people who have been hurt by this. So let me tell you what has happened. You know, before this package was agreed upon, 
in a bipartisan fashion by the um, Senate. Um, Nancy Pelosi and the House weighed in because they wanted to use this as an attempt to drag our country further to the left. And they were not interested in helping people. They were not interested in, um, in fixing this problem. They were looking at this as an opportunity. They were opportunists, political opportunists, who were trying to use a crisis to their benefit and, um, and get their agenda passed. This is reprehensible. These people... They should. They need to be exposed. They need to be shown for what they are. And I'm just going to go through a few of the things that were on Nancy Pelosi's wish list for an for an aid package. She wanted this to include mandatory early voting, ballot harvesting, which is paying people to help voters. That means requesting a ballot without a voter ID and to allow people to vote without proving who they were. This is basically um, uh, voter fraud that she wanted to, um, she wanted to uh, legitimize uh, uh, through, through this legislation. She wanted to require federal agencies to review the usage of minority banks to um, curb airline carbon emissions by 50% by 2050 to um, state that any company getting um, benefits had to disclose diversity stat, stat statistics, race, gender, pay, corporate board diversity, and the structure of the offices that deal with um, diversity in, and inclusion. She wanted to bail out the post office and eliminate eight, $11 billion in debt. She wanted to require a union member to be on the board of each airline that gets money. She wanted to reinstitute Obama phones. She wanted a pension relief fund for newspapers. She wanted a $15 minimum wage to any business receiving money. She wanted same-day voter registration, and she wanted to eliminate student loans. There were other things that she wanted, few of the things they got, which was giving money to PBS, to giving money to the Kennedy Center, uh, they had to make a few compromises and hold their nose, but all of the things on the Pelosi wish list were were exposed by the media, by the the, um, uh, the conservative media, and um, and the Senate struck a deal. She got a couple of the things that I mentioned into this um, deal that the Senate agreed upon, that Schumer and uh, and McConnell agreed upon. But um, now I think that the, the word is that the House will pass this legislation without convening because they're scattered across the country and they'll just do a, uh, a vote by acclamation and uh, this will go to the president's desk. But these people cannot help themselves. They are, they are um, they're sick. They're sick individuals. And uh, they cannot uh, see... The, the crisis that is happening in this country um, through a humanitarian lens. They only can see it through a political lens. And this is really the, the tragedy of where we are today. I'm going to depart from, from politics and 
end the show with a personal um, note and personal experience. So, for those of you who don't know who I am or who haven't uh, um, Googled Hal Schurz, um, I am the managing partner of one of the largest urology practices in the country, and I practice in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, we um, are affected by the coronavirus um, just as much as everybody. Um, we have um, 50 doctors. We have 16 um, mid-levels, which are nurse practitioners or physician's assistants. We have 450 employees with 34 offices and seven surgery centers, and we service a, uh, a community that uh, exceeds um, 9 million people. Um, the um, coronavirus has changed our lives and the lives of all of our patients beyond any kind of uh, uh, imaginability. Um, the the responsibility that we have as doctors and much of what we do are not emergency surgeries. We, we as urologists, um, do take care of emergencies. Kidney stones are emergencies. Cancers are emergencies. There are emergencies in, in children that they have. But, but for the, for, by and large, the majority of the problems that we take care of are the problems that people have on a daily basis, and we've had to adjust our practice in order to be able to do it. We no longer do elective surgeries. That has been shut down by um, um, not by the hospitals, but, but also by design by us, following guidelines that have been um, issued by different agencies. We follow the American College of Surgeon guidelines um, because I think that those are the most reasonable guidelines. And I started out earlier in the show saying that we're in this mess because we, um, as a country, have allowed others to um, manage health care other than doctors. In fact, in times of crises, doctors have led they have risen to the occasion, particularly surgeons who, in 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 um, times where there are mass casualties and other um, uh, problems that involve trauma, the surgeons have led the way, and the American College of Surgeons has done a superb job of giving guidance to those who need it. People in Washington, people. Um, around the country who run hospitals. These are, these are um, recommendations coming from people who deal with stressful life and death situations on a daily basis, and they've done a superb job. And we follow the American College of Surgeon guidelines, which are to curtail elective surgeries, which we have done. The, um, the uh, people... Um, that uh, we're seeing right now, we've changed. We let me say this: the um, talking heads on TV, both doctors, politicians, and the president, you've heard, um, are promoting telemedicine, telehealth, and this is something that um, 
<clears throat> you are uh, um, hearing more and more about. And it's something that you can't just flip the switch and do telehealth. It's very complicated, especially in a large um, practice or in a hospital setting. Um, fortunately, there's been a relaxation of, of rules. There's been elimination of red tape, much to the, um, uh, the, uh, the um, thanks, thanks in, in large part to the President of the United States eliminating those, those barriers so that you can give do telehealth now um, across state lines. Medicare and Medicaid, which were had limitations on telehealth, now are recognizing that this is okay to do, and um, the uh, we are uh, finding that when the red tape is eliminated and um, the uh, and, and allowing physicians to lead and be innovators, we're finding that there is um, no. Uh, limit no boundaries to what we can do to uh, work around and fix a problem, and that's exactly what we're doing in my practice. So what we have done is we've converted um, our practice, which sees thousands of patients every week, to a telehealth um, platform, and we had been doing telehealth before this to in a very limited. Uh, fashion, what this crisis has done is it has accelerated our um, our uh, embracing telehealth, so that now over ninety percent of our patients can be taken care of on a telehealth platform. And this week, we've spent the entire week um, converting our entire practice to this platform to allow it to happen, so that when people call in, <clears throat> we determine whether or not they have an urgent or emergent problem, and we're still seeing patients on a limited basis um, exercising, implementing social distancing, trying to keep people out of the waiting rooms and the offices and let them in on a limited basis for their protection and the protection of our staff, but also determining whether or not somebody has a problem that we can't see telehealth, but it's not urgent. And if that's the case, we put it off. We're putting it off for uh, a number of weeks. But for the majority of the people, we're trying to help them and get through this this time on a telehealth platform, which is extremely important because people are so anxious about their everyday problems. And we're there trying to fill that niche and make sure that we can take care of them. There's going to be a lot that comes out of this after the fact that I'm hopeful we will be able to navigate. Issues that we didn't even think about before. Things like HIPAA. There's no HIPAA right now because these the, the red tape has been thrown away. They, um, so protected information is no longer able to be protected. We're, we're doing telehealth on our cell phones or we're doing it, you know, on unsecured platforms. And, um, you know, it's my hope that after this is all said and done, this is um, going to um, uh, go away, that HIPAA, that so, so much of what has um, been imp implemented, so much of what has been um, foisted upon 
um, the medical community in our country will be shown to be of no use and we can get rid of it and start to roll back so much of what happened before. Um, it's my hope that after all of this, we don't see a spike in um, um, legal uh, claims against doctors who are doing telehealth, which is a, a huge concern that we have. Um, it's my hope that there'll be some protection from the federal and state governments um, to any health care provider who is delivering telehealth during this time and holding us harmless and that uh, they will throw out any of the claims from these ambulance chasers because, believe me, there will be many of those that come out um, from their holes after, after all is said and done. Um, I think that it's important to, um, to know that uh, this is a, uh, a situation that uh, is going to change health care forever. Telehealth is going to be a big part of what we do. Our patients love it. Even our doctors that were resistant to wanting to deliver health care in this platform are finding that it's actually quite helpful. It won't replace visits in the office, but it will be a big part of um, how we uh, practice medicine in the future. I think that this, this crisis is going to reveal the, um, the fact that um, um, restricting health care and letting hospitals run the show is a huge problem. If we had more health care, not less health care, if we had no restrictions on facilities that were able to open because of what we've talked about on the show for years, which is certificate of need laws, then there will be more resources in the community, not fewer. It's, it's going to reveal that um, hospitals don't do a good job of, of running um, uh, a crisis situation. It's the doctors that are doing it. It's not the hospitals. The hospitals are, are real estate. It's the doctors that are doing it. I think that hospital um, ownership or, or uh, buy, buying of medical practices will actually re be reversed. And I think that private equity firms that are, have bought um, medical practices um, are going to uh, uh, stop doing this because many of those private equity firms have lost their shirts in the last few weeks with medical practices that have lost millions, if not billions of dollars from inactivity. And so this is hopefully going to reveal what a bad business model this is for them. One last final thought, and that is about this crisis. We are finding that there are people who um, look at this differently. Um, there are going to be people who are going to want to take care of their employees and, uh, and help them through this, and then there are going to be people who are going to be looking out for themselves. My practice decided that they were going to be looking out for our employees. Our doctors, all 50 of them, have opted not to take a salary during this crisis. We are going to suck it up 
and we're going to use all the resources that we currently have and that and those that come in through telehealth, which will be a fraction of what we produce on an ordinary basis, we're going to use to um, pay our employees and make them whole because they are the most vulnerable people in our practice, but they are the backbone of our practice. And if doctors recognize that and and, uh, and uh, we're able to do what we do, I think that will come out of this um, just fine and uh, the medical community will be stronger uh, because of this. But I do think that uh, it's important that uh, we, we realize that the doctors are really on the front lines of this whole crisis, just like the soldiers are on the front line when the, when, uh, the politicians declare a war. And they're the ones who get thrown out there and we salute them, but then we forget about them. And I'm hoping that people will not forget that the doctors are the ones that are fighting this battle and are trying to keep people healthy. At the end of the day, people need the doctors. And we are going to, at the, when we come out from all of this, be reminding people about what is going on right now and that the decisions that are being made regarding health care <clears throat> need to be made by doctors, not by politicians, not by bureaucrats, because the doctors know better than the politicians do about these issues. Um, there is uh, um, going to be um, a, a big a, a big sea change in medicine um, when we get um, uh, on the other side of this, and we are getting on the other side of this. Um, it will... Um, I don't know when that's going to be, but, but I do hope that uh, it is something that uh, happens sooner than later. And I know that if we all stay strong, we don't believe the rhetoric. We do not get into the politics. We all take care of ourselves. We follow the um, CDC guidelines for staying safe, which is hand-washing and uh, practicing uh, social distancing, keeping surfaces clean. Um, I think that uh, the curve will flatten out by itself, especially in the warmer weather. The hospitals are gearing up. The president's doing the right thing, and the doctors are rising to the occasion. So this is a, uh, um, uh, a kind of an unusual show for me today, but I hope that this was helpful and informative. And uh, my co-host, Dr. Scott, will be here next week uh, to uh, share uh, his uh, insights, I'm sure, into what's going on, and I'll be back in uh, two weeks uh, with another uh, show in the Doctor's Lounge. So, thank you for being with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.